I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. This episode has been designed for all of those interested in the nuts and bolts of research in maritime history. It's so easy for historians engaged in research to take what they do for granted without realising how interesting the process of research might be for others. In fact, one of my greatest bugbears is that history is usually presented to the public as a fait accompli, as something that has already happened, rather than history itself being an organic, growing and surprisingly contemporary business. In fact, it's no surprise that some, and I could probably say here most, of the most interesting and exciting historical research uses the very latest research techniques and technologies and often a great deal of imagination and creativity. I've in fact come across an example for you. Uh, This has been supplied by Byrne and Magnus MacLeod. Thanks very much, both of you, for getting in touch. Um, And this little section here is designed to be something of a trailer for a future episode on model making. So do uh, do keep tuned for that. Anyway, Magnus has spent a great deal of the last 15 years building a model of the Royal Oak, a 74 gun ship of the line launched in 1769. Now, when it came to the very elaborate carvings on the stern and how to recreate them, Magnus, and I'm quoting here, then spent six months carving the starboard wyvern using a binocular microscope and chisels and gouges ground from needles. (laughs) Wow, that is some sentence. Chisels and gouges ground from needles. I don't think you quite get dedication like you do from model makers. Well done, Magnus. Anyway, he then discovered something called ZBrush, which is a digital sculpting tool, and it combines 3D design, texturing and painting. Uh, You'll have seen stuff produced by this uh, in Game of Thrones. The dragons were made uh, out of this in Game of Thrones, all the Warhammer fantasy creatures. Anyway, Magnus has taken up sculpting uh, in this virtual environment. Um, And it's wonderful because it allows you to rework your sculpts again and again until you're totally happy with them. So in days and weeks, you can gain the equivalent of many years worth of sculpting experience in real materials. 
this essentially enables you to recarve your work bit by bit until, as Magnus told me, you um, you can do no better. At any step along the way, you can make a copy of your work. You can then compare it one version with another. Uh, you can look at it from every angle and you can mirror it in a moment. It's all um, extremely powerful software. But this virtual design on a computer is only stage one. The next stage is to have the files that you've created in ZBrush 3D printed. And you do this by using a bath of a type of high detail resin, which is solidified in the right place by lasers. Again, another amazing sentence. But once that's done, you have a perfect 3D creation of what you've sculpted virtually on a computer, but you still have not finished. The problem being here is how do you paint them? Well, you might presume this is straightforward, apart from the fact that contemporary sources of the Royal Oak show that the stern carvings are gold painted. But how do you do this? How do you maybe spray paint uh, a tiny model with gold without flooding these perfect little sculptures. And um, the answer that Magnus came across was to use a technique called gold sputtering. This technique covers objects with an extremely thin coat of pure gold, and it is as thick as the amount that your fingernails grow in 15 seconds. Again, it is another extraordinary sentence. I'll say it again. It is as thick or maybe as thin as the amount that your fingernails grow in 15 seconds. And this technique has been developed by bioengineering scientists, others developing technology in the world of those seeking to coat a huge variety of objects in extremely thin film. It's technology that's used in things like solar technologies, batteries, biosensors, and a great deal of things that I don't understand and have never heard of. Anyway, the result of all of this is that Magnus has virtually sculpted, 3D printed carvings for the stern of the royal oak, and he has then had them gold sputtered. And the result is the most extraordinary, minute, utterly perfect gold coated carvings of an 18th century uh, warship stern created using the very latest technology. Wow. Now, I think I should say here that the most impressive bit of all of this is that Magnus is, wait for it, He's 85 years old. <laughs> well done indeed. Anyway, I want I want to see this model. I hear you all cry. Well, I definitely will bring you some footage of this as soon as I can. So stand by for that. Now back to the world of us clumsy and cack-handed, unvisionary mortals who can't grind gouges out of needles. What I wanted to do today was to take you into a maritime archive to hear about the variety of material you might come across and how you might go about teasing out the stories that are hidden inside them as you go about, um, well, your traditional research with pencil and paper. This is where all historians must start, and even if you do become heavily involved in the use of space technology to do your historical research, you still need to be able to find your way around an archive and have some kind of sense of what you are looking at and why it might be important. So today I spoke to Maxim Wilson. He is the archivist at the Heritage and Education Centre of the Lloyd's Register Foundation. Please note that we discuss at one point Lloyd's wonderful collection of boiler plans. Now, I was so taken by these. They are quite beautiful in a very curious way that to help make sense of them, we have cleverly animated one so that you can see the ship's boiler grow out of the plan 
um, you can then explore it in 3D and see it melt back into the original 19th century drawing. You can find this on the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube page and Facebook page, so please do check that out. Anyway, here is the charming and the fascinating Max Wilson. Max, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thanks very much. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so my idea for this came about because I saw something called a boiler plan in the archives of the Lloyd's Register Foundation. And it was a, a, a beautiful thing, but I had no idea at all what it meant or how it worked. And for those of you out there uh, who are listening, the boiler plan I saw um, was a drawing of, uh, well, Max will tell us a bit more about this, but it was a drawing of a boiler, a scheme for a boiler, and it looked a bit like a pizza. Uh, so it's it's more or less round. At the top of it, there are some sort of circles about the size of 10p pieces or pepperoni. Then there are some smaller circles like olives. And then there are two really big circles like fried eggs. <laughs> and um, I, I loved it. I thought it was particularly beautiful just for, for what it looked like as a work of art, really. But obviously it has some kind of uh, technical meaning. And I've been working with you guys over the last few weeks to, to make it come alive. Um, so if everyone's listening, um, do please check out the Mariner's Mirror pod, Instagram and our YouTube channel, because there is a truly fabulous animation which makes sense of this wonderful work of art. Anyway, this has led me to want to talk to Max from uh, the Lloyd's Register Foundation about maritime archives, because it made me realise that there are so many different types of documents that you can come across if you're a maritime historian and they all have their own challenges and rewards so max let's start with um with these boiler plans have you have you seen you've seen the baku standard one that i'm talking about yes yes i have yeah it's a really really good example um and um it's it sort of typifies uh one of about i have the exact number for you as well it's uh, 8651 that we currently have on our website as of this moment <laughs> That's unbelievable. <laughs> it is. I must. Admit, I'm glad that you find them so exciting because they are not always the uh, uh, the easiest sell um, to uh, to researchers. They're usually sort of one of the bottom bottom pile of uh, the you know, the plans that people are looking for. Yeah. So. <laughs> but without doubt, the most the most visually arresting, um, which means I think as long as you as soon as we can make them make sense to people, then I think uh, I, I reckon more researchers will look into them. Um, so tell me about about these 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 boiler plans. What exactly are they? Um, so essentially, um, you know, these 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 boiler plans uh, they were submitted by by manufacturers, by uh, by builders, uh, by owners uh, of vessels uh, for to Lloyd's Register for for survey, um, and they they record everything from the dimensions and specifications of those uh, those specific boilers um, in coordination with usually a survey report, um, uh, and. Um, they, they will record everything from the working pressure uh, per square inch. They'll record uh, everything from uh, the, uh, the manufacturer's details, um, what sort of design it was, and also you know, just generally really um, alongside other documentation, what, what kind of purposes it'll be for, whether or not it's uh, a main boiler or, or what's also referred to as a donkey boiler as well, which I'm sure is, you've come across many times. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, it's it's... They, they sort of start um, generally uh, to appear from about uh, 1875 uh, onwards. Um, and, you know, as is the case with many of our kind of technical drawings and plans within the collection, 
Um, and so they were submitted for design approval by Lloyd's Register and uh, engineer surveyors at the request of the owners. Um, and so we sort of finally start to see uh, rules for surveying and constructing boilers by about the mid 1880s. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and on top of that, uh, Lloyd's Register has always done something called a special survey where uh, we, we will survey um, a vessel or a piece of machinery uh, essentially while it's being constructed. Uh, and so as a part of this, there was a design approval stage. And ultimately, that's why we have quite so many boilers. But um, yeah, for a very long time, it, um, the boiler wasn't seen as, a, as, a, as an essential part of the ship to survey. No, but I mean, if you think, I mean, it's all to do with with safety at sea, isn't it? That that's the principle mm. behind why you've got the drawings. Um, and if you you think about the <laughs> the principle of a boiler, so uh, you've got a great deal of hot air and water and compression, and it, it's unbelievably dangerous. <laughs> so you, you said that they they had, um, you know, these became standard by the eighteen seventies or so. There was a good few decades of of ships with boilers before then. Yes, yes, there are. It, it's a really interesting, I suppose, to sort of really understand, uh, you know, really, I suppose, what, what happened and why Lloyd's Register decided to, uh, I suppose, to to embrace this technological change and try and adapt and integrate it with the surveys and classification. Um, it's, uh, as, my, as my colleague Charlotte said in her podcast with you uh, a few weeks back, um, she said that, you know, up until this, the 1870s, uh, the Lloyd's Register survey was confined to the classification basically of two elements, uh, a vessel's hull uh, and the vessel's outfit. So the masts, spars, rigging, anchors, chains, pumps, boats, all other kinds of ephemera um, that are required for you know, the safe operation of that vessel. Um, and so these engines and boilers and other machinery, whilst they were around for a very, very long time, they, they simply just weren't included. They were seen as an addition to the vessels um, and subsequently outside of the purview of a Lloyd's Register survey, which of course is nonsensical when we think of it today and just how integral they are to, to the ship. Um, and this was something that a lot of surveyors, uh, as time goes on throughout the 19th century, actually start to write in and complain about. Um, you know, they obviously have such a huge convergence of, of new technologies that start to come to the fore uh, with steam and iron and steel. Um, and LR, well, Lloyd's Register off, operated really quite a cautious route when it came to incorporating these elements. Um, and so one of our surveyors, uh, a man who was the surveyor at uh, Leith, uh, Walter Payton, um, he, he highlighted the problem as early as 1839. Um, and he said uh, he actually wrote um, as, as part of a report to Parliament that was looking into uh, boiler and machinery safety. Uh, I inspected one of the steamers and found her to be a strong and substantial vessel. On inquiry, I was informed that they have occasional surveys on the engines and boilers, but in my opinion, it is not such a survey as ought to be deemed sufficient, being made by the engineer and boiler maker who do the work for the company and are, of course, not so impartial or independent as neutral persons may supposed to be. Um, So uh, he also noted as well that it was very common practice, uh, particularly in the 1830s and 40s, uh, for coal and other types of fuel to be kept either above or below the boiler or the furnace. Um, so quite an odd working practice, uh, and certainly not. It's, it's not like one it's like the Wild West, the Wild <laughs> West of of of, uh, of you know ship design and stuff. But before it was all regulated, I, I remember um, was it a, something on the Great Western or the Great Eastern? This is just coming into the top of my head about um, a terrible boiler explosion there, just when Brunel was really trying to come to grips with it. 
Yes. Um, that's yes. something I need to find out about. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, it, I think, I mean, ultimately, I think, um, you know, really, yeah, it's, it's those kinds of disasters, uh, you know, that um, which we start to see a large spike of uh, in the mid 19th century that really start to motivate this change. Um, you know, what exactly why Lloyd's Register was so reluctant and sort of dragged its heels to incorporate engines and boilers and other forms of machinery into the surveying classification is sort of unclear, but I, I suppose broadly, they were kind of dismissed as experimental technological fads, really. Um, uh, you know, the, the experience and qualifications of the surveyors uh, had always been sort of based in the era of wooden sail, and they'd grown up as apprentices to the shipyards. Um, and so to change this and to rectify uh, uh, this, it would require a huge overhaul of their entire staff uh, and resources and retraining and um, on top of that, though, as well, as you as you said before, as well, it, it's these 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 disasters at sea that we start to see become a huge motivating factor. Um, but Lloyd's Register sort of um, they they very early on see that the engines and machinery and boilers are, are, are absolutely crucial to the vessel, um, even if they are outside of the survey. So they sort of come up with a middle ground from about the 1830s. Um, and we start to see one type of record, which is really interesting. And we have hundreds of them throughout the archive. And they're called certificates for vessels navigated by steam. Um, and um, essentially as, as part of a middle ground, because the, the survey of these engines and boilers was outside of the purview of the, of, of the surveyor, it was essentially a form that would be provided to the owner or the master engineer on, this, on the vessel uh, and then they would fill it out themselves. But of course, there was no way of actually verifying whether or not what they were saying was, was true or accurate. And of course, as you can imagine, it's, it leaves an awful lot to be desired in terms of, uh, well, really, I suppose, in terms of um, the objectivity of the survey. Um, but it's, it's yeah. sort of an interesting middle ground. It is, you know, it's, it's, it's good to hear that happen. The, um, one of the challenges, I think, of looking at these kind of technical documents like the boiler plans is, is to kind of put the people back into it. So you've got the visibility of the, the surveyor who's done the drawings, maybe someone who's signed it off and um, someone who's designed it. But I was we've just been animating a new ship plant for HMS Warrior, so built in the 1860s, iron hull, steam engines. Um, and I was just coming across descriptions of, of people working in the in the boiler room there. And it was it was awful. Mm. I mean it was unimaginably hot and there's coal dust everywhere. And you know, it's it's easy to be sort of lighthearted about the the, the safety uh, requirements, but the descriptions of injuries when boilers go wrong are unimaginable. Um, I came across a couple actually from um, the First World War. But p- people's skin just comes off. Basically, mm. it's the it's the, the the pressure of the steam and the, the 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 enormous heat that's there that when they explode. So I think that's something to to bear in mind. Um, so th- these boiler plans are part of a, a, a broader survey reports so let's look at some of the other documents that a maritime historian might come across um in your archive yeah of course um so it's it's um uh, well one of one of the larger um i suppose really one of the cornerstones really of our collection are are the survey reports themselves um so uh you know really you know whenever i have uh, a researcher that comes in i a lot of the time they're obviously very keen on getting their hands on plans um you know and seeing that visual representation of of the vessel or the machinery um, but I will always encourage them to take a closer look at the vessel survey reports because uh, they contain such a wealth of information um, that they, you know, that, um, that forms such an integral part of the collection. 
Um, so online right now, these survey reports, they're about 215,000 um, on our on our on our uh, website now available. This number is likely to grow as we're only based on conservative estimations uh, where we're probably only about a third of the way through our cataloging and digitizing program. So, yeah, I suppose broadly, possibly somewhere in the region of about 600, 700,000 we will have in, eventually once we finally reach the end. What format do these? Th- well, actually, first of all, what's what's the what's the uh, the address for the website if people are listening? Yeah, where of course. They, where would they find that? Uh, so that's uh, heck.lrfoundation.org.uk, uh, and if you go to our archive and library tab, and then within that, our ship plan and survey reports uh, tab as well. So that's heck h e c h e c foundation. That's the one. Yeah, yeah there we go. Um, and so let's just describe these survey reports. What are they physically like? What sort of information do they hold? Well, they're sort of uh, sort of fool's cap uh, size, um, and um, uh, basically they start in about 1834. Uh, you know, really from the very earliest point in our in our ship plan and survey report collection, and they include information um, of a well, but essentially a, a, the registration of a ship. So it'll be information on the ship's build, uh, its ownership, uh, voyages, uh, machinery, materials, repair, classification, dimensions, loss. Um, uh, and essentially, um, they contain the details of the vessel that are recorded at the time that the vessel was inspected. Um, and as you can imagine, if a ship has, uh, you know, is, is afloat for say twenty-five years, they'll have several several survey reports throughout their life um, at sea. Um, and and so it's it's quite interesting to be able to chart those uh, through through these survey reports. Um, and so essentially, um, a lot of this information, like this these uh, ownership and voyages and and information about the ship's build. This is the information that would make its way into the uh, the annually published register of ships should that vessel receive its classification. Um, mm. And we have a huge variety of different survey reports. Uh, you know, initially we have about uh, really two. We have uh, a first entry report, which is literally the very first time that a ship enters our records. And then afterwards you have these periodical surveys called annual sur- uh, surveys. Um, which again record general general maintenance uh, inspections, any repairs. Um, but obviously, as time goes on and survey and the rules for classing, uh, you know, uh, classing ships grow, uh, we start to see really a huge, huge change and a, a great proliferation of different types of survey reports. Um, so we have, you know, you've got machinery um, uh, machinery survey reports. You have boiler survey reports, uh, composite ship surveys, iron ship surveys, electrical light installation surveys refrigeration surveys uh, and um yeah they are they're they're really fascinating records to to talk about i could go on for ages <laughs> <laughs> no it's good I, I love the refrigeration surveys let's do something with the refrigeration surveys Absolutely. again it sounds slightly archaic and weird but um the the transportation of refrigerated goods by sea just changed changed everything didn't it it changed the the, the way the world eats absolutely absolutely i mean it's it's um yeah, I, th- I think the developments to get to that point as well are absolutely fascinating. And um, you know, uh, one of the sh- one of those ships that we have within our collection is uh, the Dunedin, uh, which is the very first ship, obviously to to convey uh, frozen meat from New Zealand to London. Um, but uh, yeah, some of the interesting accounts that you get of the uh, of the um, you know the kind of intrepid efforts of the master to to try and keep this meat fresh. Um, you know, nearly to the point where he's, yeah, I think nearly where he's, he actually nearly freezes to death. I think trying to drill holes to try and aerate the uh, the freezers. <laughs> is it is it not is it not the the, the first time that it, that I might be completely wrong, but but that that meat is successfully 
transported I, that is yes that is yeah that is an interesting uh, yeah point to make yeah it's, it's definitely the first time it's successfully transported yes <laughs> so it's like we're, we're identifying this again this this gray liminal area the wild west of pre-refrigeration where it would just <laughs> everything rotted and it was all yeah. a disaster but I mean, people must have lost huge fortunes in food if you're loading up a you know a ship with food in the anticipation of getting it from wellington to london um it, you know without it being being rotten and then finding it is rotten oh i'd like to find out about that yeah, and maybe i should one. do an- another phd <laughs> uh, the um okay burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping and that extends to their outdoor collection their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware weather ready teak and quick dry foam cushions for Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And you've got ship plans as well. We do. You've got some wonderful ship plans. Yes, we do. Um, you know, so uh, obviously with with ship plans, we have um, we have approximately about forty five thousand uh, at this stage within our digitization project. Um, so when we started the project, it was believed that we have, on average, out of this one point two five million records, uh, that we should have somewhere in the region of approximately ninety six thousand. Um, though. You know the num the figure that we're currently at uh, shows that it's probably going to be much higher than ninety six thousand eventually. Um, but we hold a number of really quite amazing plans for some some really noteworthy vessels like uh, like the uh, the Lusitania, the Carpathia, uh, the Cutty Sark, um, uh, and obviously the Baku Standard as well. Um, and um, yeah, they're, they're, I mean, to be completely honest, it's um, it's again as as well as being a really fascinating part of our collection. There's just there are so many different types of plans that we're that we're coming across. Um, you know, obviously you have very very standard ones, but there are plans for pretty much almost anything you could think of. Um, and uh, let's just 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 help people imagine what a ship plan actually is. So um, yeah, the ship plans are uh, essentially uh, any sort of plan that's uh, that's created or a technical drawing. Um, that's created either on uh, sort of linseed paper or, or as a cyanotype or, or, or a blueprint. Um, and uh, essentially they come in a variety of different sizes, everything from sort of, si- sort of seven or seven to eight feet long to plans mm. that you could quite literally just hold in the palm of your hand mm. uh, quite comfortably. Um, and uh, generally speaking, they, they were drawn up by, uh, by the manufacturer, by the builder, 
uh, as part of a, that, you know, that design process that we spoke about with boiler plans in mind. Um, and then they would be passed and inspected by the Lloyd's Register surveyor and then amendments would be made until finally a design uh, that was safe uh, was finally uh, approved. Yeah. And if you think about a, a ship as a three-dimensional object, so you've got uh, boil, uh, um, ship plans which are like bird's eye views, mm. so looking looking down on the deck, but then you can look down on every single deck through oh, the layer of that, of that cake. And then you also you have plans which see that the whole thing in section, so you, you can look um, sort of along the ship as well. Um, and that there are um, very often very detailed plans about, about particular bits on, on, that might be on the deck or might be inside the hull so oh, a huge variety yeah absolutely i mean i you know it's particularly uh you know one of one of my favorite types of plan uh, that we do hold uh for the thing you know, that that great era of luxury travel and the luxury liner um because you know particularly with with those we have these amazing profile and deck plans which are quite literally very large plans with um a representation of the profile of that ship uh, and then obviously, as yeah. you just said, each deck, but even to the detail where you can see how many, st- you can count the number of stools that are sitting around the bar on the Mauritania, for example, uh, or the piano in the corner, uh, things like that. And or sort of, you know, how many, how many stools there are where the, you know, in the, uh, in the changing rooms of the swimming pool, things like that. And it's such huge detail, um, you know, but we, as I said, I mean, what I think one of my favourite plans within, within the collection is possibly one that we, we, we discovered really about two months ago, um, which is quite unusual. Um, so it's a profile plan uh, like that that I've just mentioned of the a ship called the SS Mexican uh, in 1906, which was built by the uh, the Union Ironworks Company in San Francisco. Um, and it's sort of it's not a, a particularly amazing ship for any 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 particular reason. But um, while she was being constructed uh, in San Francisco, uh, obviously the uh, uh, the Great San Francisco earthquake uh, took place, mm. and so which destroy famously destroyed about 80 percent of the city. Um, and this plan is literally just there to show the new position, her new position within the dry dock uh, after the shock of the earthquake, where she's hmm. obviously was upright, but has now fallen over to one side and is is, is completely askew. Um, luckily, she survived uh, the event, but it's it's an amazing record of just how far she'd shifted after the shock of the earthquake. Yeah. Uh, that's fascinating. I'd, I'd love to see that. Hmm. I mean, particularly like you just talking about the piano on the Carpathia as well. Um, because it really puts the people who drew these diagrams into the frame of history. So are you assuming there are so many things on that ship that you can choose to pick out or you can choose to leave out? But for some reason, the draw, the designer decided to put in the piano. <laughs> I love that. Um, it, it's very similar to the history of dictionaries as well. There are, there are other things, you know, in history where, where you think that they're, they're anonymous, but they're actually not. And they, the, the person who has compiled it has, has kind of infused that technical drawing or, or you know, document, whatever it might be, with their own personality. Um, I tell you what, let's let's get a, a picture of that Carpathia thing, and um, and we'll, we'll we'll work some magic with it. That sounds fun. Absolutely. So, as well as these these technical plans, you've got all sorts of of um, letters and correspondence, and this is often the the, the lifeblood of, of all history, really. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I must admit that in terms of well, letters and correspondence, they're they're probably my my favourite um, type of record that we have within the collection. Which I realise I've said about three instances prior to that. <laughs> um, so, but it's it's uh, they are just such a fascinating source of of social history. And um, you know, currently on our website again, we have about one hundred and two thousand letters. Um, 
within within our ship plan survey report collection dating as far back as 1834. Um, this number will, as I've said so many times, it will go up quite massively over the next few months. Um, but um, essentially, the, the, the letters and the correspondence, they're, they're, it, it's, it's notes, it's general memoranda, it's letters that are received by and from Lloyd's Register surveyors, clerks, senior staff, uh, but it also covers shipbuilders, ship owners, underwriters um, from the 1834, well, uh, from 1834 until about the 1970s that are received across the world. Um, and whilst they kind of, they, so they typically concern issues that surround the construction, survey, report, uh, repair, salvage and loss of vessels, they often include really quite amazing sort of quirky anecdotes and stories that provide insight. It's really amazing insights into the lives of people that worked and lived alongside shipping. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, one of my, I think, uh, you know, I, it was, this is one that I dug out uh, specifically for this because it's, it's such an amazing record. Um, and it was a record from uh, uh, James Mowat, uh, who was the Lloyd's Register Surveyor for Orkney. Um, and um, it, essentially, um, he's, he's uh, uh, it was, this was something that I discovered while I was looking for other things. Uh, and it was a small bundle of letters that had been tied up with a string uh, within this box for the Orkney office. Um, and Mowat, so Mowat had been, um, just for a bit of background, Mowat had been the, the surveyor there from about 1862 to 1886. Um, and somewhere around in about 1876 to 1877, he seems to have had this very long-standing feud with a Stornoway shipbuilder uh, called uh, uh, Aeneas M. Mackenzie. Um, and um, the feud basically seems to have sort of uh, uh, spurned really from... Um, a disagreement about Mowat's surveying ability, which had culminated in essentially a, a raft of poison pen letters from Mackenzie to the surveyor, um, all of which um, Mowat uh, had, uh, had packaged up uh, with a covering letter and sent on to the chairman at London. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> look what I'm dealing with. <laughs> exactly, yeah, and it's amazing. And, we, and he's, he's, yeah, luckily, um, you know, we get references to poison pen letters all the time because, you know, obviously you know, your relationship with the shipbuilders and the ship owners is, is of absolute paramount importance, but it's, it's very rare that, um, you know, that we ever, that we ever actually get the letters uh, and, that, and that they survive. But a lot of the time they would just refer to them. Uh, but mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the cover letter, I should say, um, so he says, I herewith return Mr. McKenzie's letters as requested, which I find to be in keeping with his former correspondence regarding myself. I now wait the result of his, of his threats it is, you know, it is, however, unpleasant to have to, uh, to do business with a party of his disposition. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's just, just to kind of give a really, really brief, um, uh, I suppose, little excerpt from uh, one, of these, one of these poison pen letters, because they are, they are amazing. Um, he, uh, he, he essentially, um, uh, it, it's about uh, a poor survey that was done on his vessel, uh, the Cabar Freed. Um, in which um, he believes that a poor survey was carried out and it resulted in a very hefty repair bill uh, several weeks later, which he is now saying that the Lloyd's Register should, uh, should have to pay, but specifically Mao should have to pay out of his own pocket. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, he, uh, he basically says that, um, I beg to state that unless there is an immediate investigation made into this man's conduct, and I am at once reimbursed for any extra expense, I will bring the matter under the notice of Mr. Matheson, MP for Ross, uh, who will most certainly bring the matter before Parliament, as it is a most disgraceful affair that a mast that is dangerous to human life and property should be passed by a Lloyd's Register surveyor. Um, so yeah, it's it's. Uh, but that's that's probably one of the more polite ones. If I'm completely being completely honest. <laughs> 
I've come across so many poison pen letters in in, um, in in my life as a historian. They're wonderful. They're a wonderful little trance. And I, I, rec- I, I genuinely reckon someone could do, do a research project on uh, maritime poison pen letters, particularly oh. to do with um, with this. There's so much money at stake, and there's so much. Um, well, I mean, if you sort of pres- there is just so much at stake. Full stop. When you're dealing with things like like ship surveys, it doesn't mm. surprise me at all um and I, I think that's got real legs well done for finding those um you've also got tons of photographs haven't you yes yes so um, i mean admittedly we, we we hold slightly fewer photographs um uh you know within the ship plan and survey report collection than we would like uh, we do have a photographic um archive but um uh essentially uh you know the, these these they 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 really feature surveyed vessels in a range of very different states um so they are kind of found infrequently throughout the collection, um, but they they typically kind of uh, feature vessels at sea if they're in service, if they're in ports or in distress, um, and the, the the bulk of them really document damage. So it's everything from brittle fractures, boiler explosions, uh, shorn off gears, uh, to full scale collisions, to fire damage uh, and uh, war losses. Um, so. Um, yeah, they are. They're, they're really quite fascinating. I'm probably not really doing them justice, uh, you know, really explaining uh, for, the, for the, these, you know, some of these photographs, but they really are quite something. Yeah, that's great. And um, as always with uh, archives, you have you have sort of non-specific uh, documents. I was always told my my PhD supervisor um, Nicholas Rogers said, "Whatever you do when you're in an archive." Look in the box that says miscellaneous. That is where you will find the most interesting material that no one has ever looked at before. And I firmly, firmly believe that. And I've, I've been carrying on doing that all, all my, all my professional life. But you do have lots of sort of unusual formats and different items that you come across um, that don't really necessarily um, count as any of the of the the types we've discussed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I mean, I, I really, I'm supposed to kind of. Uh, to give a scale really of the project. So, I mean, the project is 1.25 million records. Um, so that's, it's, it's, uh, this is housed in approximately about 4,200 odd uh, boxes. And of course, for a very long time, really, I suppose the, the exact content of these has been, um, is always a bit of an unknown. So it's, it's always quite exciting whenever you bring a new box down that hasn't been looked at because um, the chances are that really it's, it's just absolutely jam-packed full of material that's not really been discovered before. Um, so it's great to be able to get that, um, you know, that uh, that material processed and online and to be and being used. Um, but as, as, as an aside from that, really, um, among, amongst all of the certificates and survey reports and plans and photographs, we also uh, discover you know, quite mysterious records and unusual items that you, you certainly couldn't predict and you can't really explain easily. Um, so they're everything from. Uh, sort of you know doodles or you know from a surveyor on a on a piece of paper that they've just thrown in with the box um to kind of business sample uh, uh, to business cards to um iron samples and caulking samples which we get uh, quite regularly um mm. but we also get things like sales pamphlets for cycling shoes and things like that um so there are a couple that um i must admit that, that instantly spring to mind um one of these was uh, it was found within a box from the hartlepool office uh, essentially amongst a, load, uh, a number of records from the turn of the 20th century. Uh, and it was rolled up within a very large profile and deck plan uh, for a vessel that was built at uh, Hartlepool. Um, and it was um, it was a train timetable for Barry Island uh, right. for, 19, for about 1904. Uh, but um, 
exactly why we have it in the collection we have absolutely no idea uh, whether or not it was the surveyor that was perhaps planning a trip or anything like that and then subsequently rolled up uh, the, the uh, this uh, train timetable within the plan we, we have absolutely no idea um but um yeah it, it's a very weird one uh very very strange um yeah it's, it's wonderful actually it does make me particularly think about ships that are going into the ice um, it's something that we've focused on a bit on this podcast. We've been reading out um, entries from the logbook of a whaler, the Swan of Hull, that gets stuck in the ice in 1836, 1837. Um, but you, you, you have um, some ships particularly which were uh, in your collection which went up into the ice, didn't you? I'm thinking of, of HMS Investigator. Uh, that's one, isn't it? Oh well, this this is actually this is this is the so obviously yeah, the, the always the, always the problem with the Royal Navy with the, with, with so the reuse of certain names. Uh, uh, this the HMS investigator that we have within our collection is uh, for um, uh, Captain Flinders, uh, HMS investigator, uh, which was the first to circumnavigate uh, Australia. Um, but certainly, in terms of in terms of Arctic Arctic ships and Arctic uh, uh, explorers, we have so many. I must admit, it's one of probably one of my uh, you know you know really one of my favourite areas uh, in terms of maritime histories, uh, specifically Arctic exploration. Um, and one of those was, um, uh, you know, we have the record for HMS Heckler, um, which, okay. which, which we were able to find within, within our collection, um, which was particularly fascinating. Um, obviously, she, she, uh, she had a, an incredibly distinguished career and I believe in, ooh, held a record for about 90 years for a ship that was wintered the furthest north. And I think travelled the first. Tell, tell us, tell us about HMS Heckler. Um, so it, it's first quarter of the nineteenth century, eighteen fifteen or so. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, so she was she was built um, in uh, in in eighteen fifteen um, on uh, on on the River Trent, and um, yeah, she went she went to the Arctic um, uh, four times. Um, really, uh, the first three times were in search of the Northwest Passage, um, and um, so she holds the record for having travelled the furthest west. Uh, in the Arctic in a single season uh, in 1820, which I, as I said before, I think she holds for about 90 years. Um, but um, we were quite amazed really to, to discover her, her survey report. Um, uh, you know, what's, what's particularly interesting about it is that I read a number of sources, uh, you know, when I was looking into this ship, um, because, you know, a, a number of sources seem to suggest that really after her Arctic career, when she was, she was essentially sold uh, in about 18... 1830, 1831, and uh, a lot of a lot of uh, sort of eminent uh, maritime historians have sort of specifically written that Heckler Heckler was um, was essentially lost really to the records. Um, obviously, the, the, the Royal Navy would sell these vessels, and then they, and then they would uh, 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 they would generally only record the the details of the sale, such as how much money was received, when it was sold, sometimes where. Um, so of course. It, it, after we'd found this record, um, what was particularly interesting was that uh, the surveyor had the foresight on the back of this survey report to say, um, oh, this is the same ship that uh, Captain Parry went to the Arctic in to find the Northwest Passage. It's very interesting. I just, I've just spoken to the shipbuilder. Um, and it's amazing that he did that because it would have been information that was absolutely useless to the committee back in London. <laughs> so it's pure, it's, uh, it's pure indulgence from his perspective, um, you know, but amazing. Um, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. Just, just one, one example of so many different, different ships you have in your collection. Well, Max, thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, it's just inspired me to, to come and, and find out as, as much as I, as I possibly can about this wonderful collection. But I promise you we're going to get the ship plan of the Carpathia out there um, so that everyone listening can, 
can have a look at that. That sounds wonderful. Uh, Max, I'm sure we'll be coming back again to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you all so much for listening today. Hopefully this has inspired you to go into an archive yourself and start your own research. Do not be nervous. Take those first steps. There are people at every turn ready to help. It may well change your life. It certainly changed mine. I still vividly remember the first time I went to the National Archives in Kew in London and ordered up a log of HMS Victory. I can't believe that I was allowed to do it. I still really can't believe that that, that I, I can go at any day and, and look at this wonderful, wonderful material. But access to historical archives, and in particular to national historical archives, is one of the great treasures of our democracy. And that's why you should all really take advantage of it. Enough for now. Do please follow us online on Twitter, on Facebook. Do please check out that fabulous video of the boiler plan that we've animated. You can find that on the Mariner's Mirror podcast YouTube channel and on our Facebook page. Um, I've also opened up a strand on the Society for Nautical Research's free forum at snr.org.uk for suggestions for the Mariner's Mirror podcast. So please do log on and contribute there if you've got any ideas or get in touch in many of the numerous ways possible. But social media is always the best. That's it for now. Do please check out the website snr.org.uk. And the best thing of all you can do is if you are not already a member, please join the Society for Nautical Research and your annual subscription will go towards publishing the most important maritime history and towards preserving our maritime past. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.